you, oh man, taken the time this week to thank God for this incredible planet that he's blessed us with? Maybe you haven't. Let me just remind us how much God has blessed us to live on planet Earth. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. together. Lord, we thank you that your word is eternal. Lord, that as we approach your word this morning, there's just such a reality of our unworthiness. And we realize as we look at scripture, uh, even Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? We're dust. And Lord, the, the flowers and the grass of the field, they, they grow up, they wither away. And Lord, in many ways, that's, as scripture details for us, that's us. We are here one day, we're gone the next. But Lord, we thank you that your word is eternal, and we ask that you would teach us this morning and encourage our hearts as we study this text, as we see who we truly are in light of scripture. Lord, we combat the false ideologies that are in the world today that would say that we are something other than what the scriptures say. So Lord, we are doing battle this morning as we're being equipped in a world that's hostile to the truth. And so, Lord, would you equip us this morning? Would you strengthen us? Would you undergird us? And would you protect us from distraction as we study your word? We ask that you'd be glorified now in our attentiveness, Lord, and that we would uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh, be encouraged as we study your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Where did man come from? When I grew up in public school, I learned about evolution. And if you also grew up learning or currently are hearing the arguments for evolution, you've seen invariably in textbooks or on websites or in commercials, the, the graphic that goes from ape to missing link transitional forms to man. In fact, one of my favorite ones is the ape that's progressing all the way to a man and then eventually to someone eating fast food. So, is that true? Those middle transitional forms, is that what led to where we are today? Where did man come from? In fact, I was fascinated to find this picture uh, that talks about human evolutionary theory, and it just kind of highlights us as one of many. You are just a primate. That's where you are. Is that where we are uh, in the created order? And so I just want to walk us through some of the transitional forms that I grew up learning about in school, and I'm dating myself a little bit, but many of you have heard of Lucy, and I want to, I think we have another slide. Lucy, of course, is uh, Australopithecine. Uh, Many thought this was a transitional form from ape to human, but paleontologists actually went in and began to saw the hip uh, joint to make it fit, uh, to fix it. And so I think I said last week that Lucy was a hoax, and what I meant by that was when paleontologists began to saw evidence to prove their theory, that seems a little bit hoax-like or dishonest uh, intellectually. So it turns out that Lucy was really just a chimpanzee uh, and not your long-lost relative. Well, then there was, I grew up learning about Heidelberg Man. Heidelberg Man, all of the evidence for Heidelberg Man was just a jaw. That's it, just a jaw. 
And the question is, how do we reconstruct that entire artistic depiction from literally a jawbone? Then there's Nebraska Man. And this is even worse, not a jaw, but a tooth. And this tooth supposedly proves there's a missing link. Turns out scientists confirmed uh, months later, years later, it was actually a pig's tooth, uh, an extinct pig. So sorry about that, Nebraska man. Uh, and if you're from Nebraska, that, we're not sliding you at all by any means. Uh, there's Piltdown Man. And Piltdown Man is an absolute hoax. This was actually a charlatan that, that mixed the bones of an ape and a human jaw together to fit them together with a human skull. And the National History Museum terms this a scientific fraud. I grew up thinking Piltdown Man was a legitimate uh, transitional form, a missing link. Well, then there's Peking Man, uh, and he, in the book Bones of Contention, is shown to merely be the result of, or the remains of, a group of apes. So all of those we can strike from the record. So none of those stand the test of science. These are not uh, any missing link transitional forms. Perhaps the most famous one is the Neanderthal or Neanderthal man. Uh, this was a creature that seemed to be stooped and ape-like. And so they said, well, this has got to be the missing link between ape and man. It turns out that Neanderthal was nothing more than a, a man, a human who had arthritis. And so the textbooks continue uh, even in the 80s, 90s, uh, to, to propel that, pr promote that. And they stopped, I think, in the mid-90s. But the public memory still keeps Neanderthal man alive. He was a transitional form. No, he was not. He was just a man with a sad bout of arthritis. Then there's New Guinea man. And this was like, we found it. We finally have uncovered the missing link. It turns out that New Guinea man was not a prehistoric dated fossil but simply someone who actually did live in Australia and who died in 1970. <laughs> so this was not prehistoric bones. This is a human who recently, very recently, died. And then, of course, there's Cro-Magnon Man. And Cro-Magnon Man was confirmed to be Homo sapiens, a.k.a. human. So we look at all these transitional forms that I grew up reading about, hearing about, and we realize that if we were to go beyond those to some of the more modern ones, there would be a table over here to the left maybe two tables filled with fossils, uh, and that's about it. There's just a handful of very small fragments, and that's supposedly gonna show us the entire fossil record leading from apes to humans. I love what John MacArthur says here. He says, so bottom line, they don't have any transitional forms. They don't have any proof for the evolution of anything, certainly no proof for the evolution of man. And the reason they're having a hard time proving it is because it didn't happen and therefore it can't be proven. And so what we're gonna see this morning from the scripture, uh, again, this is not science class, but I wanna give us a little bit of that background so that we can set up the exposition this morning. We're gonna see from the text that man was not created imago sine, meaning in the image of ape. No, we are created imago dei, the image of God. And as we open the first chapter of Genesis this morning and really close the first chapter, we come to what I call the climax of the six days of creation. We've already seen how God has created ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase that means he created from nothing what we see in creation with simply a word. With just a word, he created light and the sky and the land and the seas. He created the plant life, the sun, the moon, the stars. We learned last week the animals that fill the sky 
the seas, and the land. And we saw last week throughout chapter one, a repetition of God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good, and there was evening morning. But now we're going to see a stark interruption to this sequence. And that's why we stopped last week when we got to verse 26. God decrees to create man not after its own kind, like every other seemingly uh, creature, but he decides now in his own counsel to create man in his own image. And rather than speaking man, we learn in chapter 2, verse 7, that God forms man from the dust of the earth, and then God breathes the breath of life into man, and it says he became a nefesh hayah, he became a living being, a living creature. And so though the animals had been commanded when they were created to fill the skies, fill the seas, fill the land, God gives a mandate not only for man to fill the earth, but also to subdue it, to rule over it. And so this morning, we're going to study the origin of man, and we're going to see three things. If you're taking note, I hope you are, three things, three sections. We're going to see verses 26 and 27, the image of God, and learn what does that mean biblically. We're going to see the dominion mandate in verse 28 and understand what that is. And then the stewardship of creation in verses 29 through 31. And like I said, we'll also look at chapter 2, verse 7 and see why we are distinct from the animal kingdom and know you are not a descendant of Curious George. Okay, so let's begin with the first section, the first idea, the image of God, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Moses, the writer of Genesis, breaks the daily rhythm of God said, let there be, here on day six with let us make man in our image. Something special and distinct is happening in this verse. So I draw your attention to the word us. Then God, Elohim, said, let us. Let me actually put this on the screen how this lays out. Let us, plural, make plural, man, singular, in our image, after our likeness, that's plural, and let them uh, go on and it's plural. So what's happening here? What, is, what does this mean by us? There's one God, Deuteronomy 6. So, so, so how can Moses be writing, let us? Is Moses making a mistake here? What is happening with, with us? Well, uh, some have suggested this is the royal we. This is the majestic plural where a sovereign or a king says, we, Edward, have made a decision. Uh, and now that is uh, a weak and a faulty interpretation uh, because we don't actually see that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, not only that, but that is reading modern ideas back into the ancient text of scripture, which will always lead to error of some sort. So we have to be careful we don't do that. Many scholars love to adopt that more recently. That's a very modern take on the let us. Others suggest that this us is God addressing what theologians call the divine council. Uh, and this is, this is taking a lot of, um, a lot of contemporary um, excitement. So a lot of contemporary theologians are like, this is what this means. It's the divine council. And what is the divine council? The divine council is basically a special deliberation, they say, where God sits down with all the angelic hosts, all the angels, and God confers with the angels together in this special divine council. Now, you do see a, a hint of that in the book of Job, uh, chapter 1. Uh, but the idea, if, if that's the idea here, then that means that God is saying, let us 
as angels. Let's make man in our image, in the image of angels. Now, obviously, that is uh, a really bad interpretation because in verse 27, uh, it goes on to say, God created man in his own image. We know angels are not divine. They're created beings. They're messengers designed to serve the will of God. And we open our gathering this morning in Psalm 8 where we realize man is lower than the angels, but angels are, are not on the same divine plane as God. No, they're created beings. So we would dismiss the divine counsel uh, also as a poor interpretation. In this case, we're not reading modern language back into ancient texts, but we're reading personal conclusions. This is what I think happened, which again, whenever we read our personal conclusions into the text, we will find ourselves in error. So church, when we interpret the Bible, we have to understand the original language and the author's intent, uh, not modern language and our own intent. So what's happening here? Well, we learned two weeks ago that the word for creator, the creator God through Genesis 1 and 2 is that name Elohim. And there's a fullness to the name Elohim and there's a, a plurality to it. So when we come to this verse, verse 26, God said, let us, uh, many of the church fathers uh, and prominent uh, men in the church, like Justin, Arrhenius, Basil, Augustine, Calvin, they all interpret the us here as let us as a divine self-consultation. This is a divine decree of Father, Son, Holy Spirit saying, let us create man after our own likeness. I like what Brian Murphy, the associate professor of Old Testament at the Master Seminary says. He says, the clear emphasis throughout the Old Testament on one God must be balanced from the beginning on the basis of this early plurality of persons revelation. And so right from the very beginning, we see uh, a, plur a plurality, a, a, a trinity uh, in divinity. We know from the New Testament, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So our triune God confers with himself and decides to fashion man after his own image. Now, what does that mean? The image of God. The Latin phrase for image of God is imago Dei, and it's not just a name for a hair salon or a postmodern church. When we think about imago Dei, uh, there's a couple ways we could try to define this. So what does it mean? Does it mean what we share in common with God? That's what Philo taught and believed. So does, is that what it means? Like we share some qualities that God has, things like intelligence or the ability to communicate. Is that what it means to be made in the image of God? Wildlife biologists, zoologists have pointed out many animals have human-like capabilities, capacities. Animals have a will, so to speak. They are able to learn. They can use language. They can express dignity or self-sacrifice. They can sometimes within their species have a framework, framework of a structural society and they can work. We see ants that work. So the fact that we're able to work, the fact that we're able to have intelligence, does that make us created in the image of God? Even though animals don't have inherent morality or abstract reasoning like ethics or mathematics or the ability to, to develop language, uh, or to manufacture tools. Does that, is that what we mean by image of God? Is it just the mental, spiritual qualities that God has perfectly and we have deficiently? Uh, well, maybe it's what we do not share with creation. This is Thomas Aquinas' view. 
Uh, this is the Roman Catholic view where, well, we don't have everything animals have. We have something separate. We have a, an intellectual soul and that rises us above the animal kingdom. Uh, and that, of course, is the Roman Catholic view. Maybe it's something we lost at the fall. Maybe the original Adam had something. He had attributes that we lost in the garden and we're going to get this back in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to regain this in glory. And Jesus is supposed to be the last uh, uh, line there instead of what we will regain in glory. Uh, but the question is, maybe Jesus is the image of God. I mean, he's the perfect human after all. So maybe what it means to be uh, created in the image of God is, is this is just a cryptic language for, for Jesus. Well, of course, we know Jesus is uncreated. And though he's like us, or we are like him, there are many ways, of course, he's greater than us. And so uh, we, have to, we have to consult the, the uh, language here in the Hebrew. Now, if we come to the New Testament, the word for image uh, is the word icon, where obviously we obtain our word icon from. Now, an icon represents a brand. A logo represents a brand. I've done this before, but uh, there's different icons and they express something. So we'll just go through these. This brand, this first brand represents, uh, Randy, go ahead and put it up. This represents luxury, typically. Uh, then, of course, this next brand represents heartburn. Right? <laughs> And then, of course, this last logo represents vengeance, okay? So the, the picture corresponds to the product. So with that in mind, I want us just to consider the Hebrew word that's used in verse 26 for image. We'll put it on the screen. It's the word selim. And this is a fashioned idol which corresponds to its God. When this word is used, it typically is when it, something is fashioned to correspond to something greater. So in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden selim, and this is to be worshipped by the people. You remember that. The selim represents the king, and it ultimately represents the king's God. If you didn't serve the image, the selim, uh, you were then not serving the king. And so the image corresponded to the lordship of the king. There was a correspondence. It represented his rule and authority. The idea was, if you can't see me physically present, you can see my image, my selim, which represents me. And this somewhat looks like the king. It, was, it wasn't a completely different take. It was somewhat fashioned after his likeness and was a concrete representation of the king, though it wasn't the king himself. So in a similar way, when, when uh, someone in idolatry fashions an, an idol, it's supposed to correspond to it's God, something greater. And so that's the word that's used here. And so we don't want to be heretical and say we are idols by any means. But I think it's very interesting that the Imago Dei is something that we are. It's not something we have. We have been fashioned after God's likeness. We are a corresponding physical uh, observable representative, if you would, of Yahweh. In fact, in Genesis 5, this is the next place we read about the image of God. It says in Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. It's the same word. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam is image of God uh, and he passes this down to Seth. So is Seth in God's image? 
That's a question for you. Is Seth in God's image? Yes, he is. And so image of God is passed down through sonship. We use the phrase procreation. Have you ever thought how fitting that term is? Procreation. We are continuing the creation of passing down the image of God through childbearing. So we pass the image of God through, God through sonship. So in a moment, in Genesis 1, we're going to read the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God intends for the earth to be filled with his image bearers. When we get to Genesis chapter 9, after the floodwaters recede, we have a reaffirmation to Noah of this mandate in Genesis 1 to fill the earth. But we read this in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So though Noah and his family are saved, so is the rebellion. You see, the fall has impacted all of this uh, created order. Sin has entered the world and death through sin. So man is commanded not to shed another man's blood because we're also made in God's image. This, This procreation is a delegated responsibility given to us by God as humans. And God's lordship is intact. It's never in question. And so we don't have the right to take another person's life because that other person bears the stamp of God upon them. Yes, even unbelievers. This is not just for believers. We'll get to that later. Uh, But the idea in Genesis 9 is whoever takes the life of a man, by a man shall his life be taken. So the life taker can only have his life taken by other image bearers. And this is delegated to God uh, or to man by God. Now, later in the book of Exodus, when God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt, he establishes his covenant with them. And the very second command to Israel is not to fashion any idol. Okay, why does God forbid the making of idols? Well, other than the fact that this is simply taking the place of God uh, and is thus idolatry and, and it, it distorts and perverts our understanding of God, but it's also redundant because we are created already in his image. Mankind procreated under God's sovereignty. This is the only image of God that we need to observe. So when we think about Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of, yet you crowned us with glory and honor? We realize that we're a bundle of carbon uh, and, and hydrogen. And, you know, ultimately 99% of us are, are these um, inconsequential atoms, And yet we have been crowned by God with glory and with honor. Glory in the new creation is a big part of what the image of God means. And we'll see that a little bit later. So God has made man to be his earthly representative, so to speak, to reflect the glory of God back to God. But not only that, to also have dominion. Look at the rest of verse 26. Let them, mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if we skip ahead to Genesis 2, verse 7, we read these words. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God takes the dust of the ground and then he breathes the breath of life and and in so doing man 
is now alive. He didn't just speak man, he formed man. There's no indication in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, which sort of recapitulates Genesis 1, there's, there's no indication of eons and eons of time or families and families of evolving, developing hominids who lived, who breathed, who died. Again, now we have death before sin, which Romans 5 would contend against. We don't see any indication of a progressive movement from ape to upright. There's actually a fascinating study that came out from the University of Washington uh, a few years ago that explained that Homo sapiens were actually originally villagers and farmers around seven to 10,000 years ago. Uh, and their study um, came up with this idea that somehow harmful DNA just immediately uh, genetically entered the DNA record uh, when man lived in and around the Sumer region. I think that's very interesting. Oh, DNA just suddenly came in and corrupted mankind. We have an answer for that. And so God creates man, notice with gender, we have male and female. Now he's already separated light and dark. He's separated day and night. He's separated waters above, waters below. He's separated sea and land. And now he separates male from female. I mean, that is a very, I just got away with that, saying that publicly. God created male and female. I didn't hear any boos out there. Okay, if I posted this on Facebook, I'd get a lot of boos. But people talk about being, a, being assigned a gender at birth. Well, that was just your, the doctor just assigned you that at birth. And yet God assigned gender here in creation. See, today there's a modern, or we should call it postmodern, notion that, that your gender is distinct from your genitalia. Your gender is, 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 is not something biological. It's just something you can construct, and it depends on how you feel today. So my pronouns today are he, him, but this weekend coming up, it might be they, them. It just depends on how I'm self-identifying. Now, if someone says, well, hold on, Pastor. I mean, some people are born with genetic defects that affect the genitalia, and I'd say, well, yes. Uh, but why are the genetic defects, the exception, always seeming to define the rule? You see, here on day six, God is designing the complementarity of gender distinction, something the world and the church, sadly, is bristling against more and more. When we study this in Genesis chapter two with Adam and Eve, we'll see this more. But gender is something we should celebrate. Gender is something that we should not be ashamed of. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to Genesis two. But let's look at the dominion mandate, our second section, verse 28. It says, and God blessed them. Again, Genesis 2, we'll come back and fill in some of the details because we now have them, Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing that moves on the earth. So would you circle that first phrase, God blessed them? Let's not move past that too quickly. God blessed mankind. Have you, oh man, taken the time this week to thank God for this incredible planet that he's blessed us with? Maybe you haven't. Let me just remind us how much God has blessed us to live on planet Earth. He's blessed us with life, with sunlight, with oxygen, with his common grace. In fact, we hang suspended in space at such a perfect spot that life is sustainable. Just consider these for just a moment, that the earth is the optimal distance from the sun. If we were to move a little bit closer to it, a little bit further away from it, we talk about global climate change, right? The, the earth would be unsustainable. We have the ideal temperature of about 17 degrees Celsius. 
Can't translate that to Fahrenheit, but in Florida, it's a, just a wee bit warmer than that. We have the presence here of atmosphere. We should thank God for that, that we're protected from radiation. We have the lithosphere, and we have the biosphere that allows life to progress. We have the presence of water, uh, very important. We have the water cycles and life-giving cycles that operate in nature. And not only that, we have every day to remind us of God's grace. We have sunrises and we have sunsets. So God blesses his image bearers, but he also commands them. Notice that like the animals, man is commanded to fill the earth. But unlike the animals, God calls man to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the sea, the sky, and the earth itself. There's actually five commands in this verse, in verse 28. The commands are be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion or rule over the earth. In fact, I'd love for you to circle the word subdue or highlight it. It's actually a bit of a violent term, but it's not intended to be interpreted as if we have an adversarial relationship with creation, that we need to be hostile in our ruling. So in relation to the world, the idea can actually be translated to harness the potential and to use its resources for our benefit. Now, of course, anything can be exploited. Uh, and so if you take this in an expl exploitative way, yes, it's violent. But when we couple this with, with a self-centered, godless, sinful motivation, what do we see? We see mankind uh, promoting destruction and chaos and abuse in this world. And, and that's not what God ever intended for man. So don't listen to some who would say, oh, this is... This is uh, this is God giving man the ability to abuse. Well, certainly there's the ability within this uh, mandate, uh, but that is a misuse. And anything can be misused. You can misuse your authority as a husband. You can misuse your authority as an employer. Uh, God did not intend this for man. So an ancient Israelite would see in context this word subdue, and they would think, oh, so I can cultivate the fields of the earth. I can mine the earth for mineral riches. I can use trees for construction. I can domesticate animals uh, in service of developing the earth. So in short, God commands mankind to both reproduce as well as to rule. Henry Morris says, no instruction was given to exercise dominion over other men, but only over the earth and the animals. Had man not rebelled against God's word, all would have remained in perfect fellowship with God and therefore with one another. There was no initial need for the so-called social sciences and technologies, but only the natural sciences and their implementation. The situation was radically changed at the fall and God's commandment accordingly expanded officially after the flood. So if we take Genesis 1 and 2 together, we could broaden the mandate just a little bit. We could say that God commissions man to build community, to care for creation, as well as to work. Now, with that work, there's also Sabbath rest and worship. But man, notice, is, is given dominion, meaning our authority over creation is not because we are evolved, intelligent, or because we have opposable thumbs. That's not why we have dominion over creation. We have authority because God has conferred this authority to us. You could say it's been loaned to us by God who is the supreme authority. 
This is a, a borrowed or a loaned authority, if you would, this mandate. So let me illustrate it this way. My kids are now teenagers, so you can pray for us. Um, my son, Aiden, is about to graduate high school, which is scary. Uh, they told me when he was three, it goes quick, and here we are. Uh, it doesn't seem possible. My daughter uh, this weekend got her learner's permit, so just be warned, folks, she's on the roads. Uh, it's scary. And when they were younger, though, we would employ a babysitter. So we'd ask um, usually girls in the youth group, members of the church, to, uh, to come and, and watch our kids, to babysit them. Uh, and as a babysitter, what we did is we were conferring upon them the authority to oversee our home. So if London was toddling around the house, the babysitter was expected to help keep her alive. That's important. Go with her, watch her, keep a close watch. Uh, if my son Aiden, who was a little older than her, was banging on his drum set in his room, the babysitter was expected to settle him down a little bit and to make sure he stops doing that at sunset. So we still have happy neighbors. And so this authority given to the babysitter was not an ultimate authority. It was a delegated one for a temporary amount of time. We, you could say we conferred upon the babysitter the power over our children to correct them, to discipline them, to warn them, to direct them. Now, taken together, you could use the word rule or subdue, though the babysitter would feel that's a little bit awkward, to say, would you rule my children? Would you subdue my children for the next few hours while we're on a date? But the reality is if we were to be gone for a few hours, come home, and the dishes are piled up in the sink and the house is in chaos and disorder. Diapers had not been changed. The babysitter invited her friends to come over and watch The Bachelor. Um, there would not be reward, there would be judgment. And in a much greater way, that's a silly example, but in a much greater way, mankind has been given temporal authority not to keep kids alive, uh, but to enjoy his grace and to extend his glory to the ends of the earth throughout all generations. The dominion mandate is not merely go have children and go rule over the earth. It's so much greater than that. It's fill the earth with image bearers who will continue to extend my grace to the next generation. Take my glory to the ends of the earth. That's the, the ultimate mandate. And so with that in mind, look at this final section and let's see what God particularly gave mankind to steward. It says in verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Note real quick the word behold, very important word in Scripture. Spurgeon says, Behold is a word of wonder. It's intended to excite admiration. Whenever you see it hung out in Scripture, it's like an ancient signboard signifying that there are rich wares within. Or like the hands which solid readers have observed in the margin of older Pur uh, Puritanic books, drawing attention to something particularly worthy of observation. So don't move past behold. God is telling us what to behold. He's telling man, I've given you every plant and every fruit tree for food. Now, I just want to make this quick point because I do have hippie friends who would say verse 29 is a proof text for smoking marijuana. God has given us every plant. And I would say, well, hold on. That's not what the text says. God has given mankind plants for food, not for smoking necessarily. Okay. And you say, well, what about CBD gummies? Okay. Moving on. We're not going to talk about that. Okay. Prior to the flood, prior to the fall, you could argue that man was vegan. Here, God doesn't seem to give mankind 
the command to consume animals. Rather, God gives anything with the breath of life plants to eat. Then after the fall, some believe that uh, creatures became carnivorous and man began to eat animals, but after the flood, this practice was ratified, but not inaugurated. There's some disagreement about that. Um, And scientifically, you could say creatures may not have had canine teeth, which were useless until after the fall, or their teeth could have adapted to become sharper. Either way, after the flood, listen to what God says to mankind through Noah. Genesis 9-2, the fear of you, the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But God is stewarding creation, the plants, the animals, not to be a destructive, self-centered exploitation, but to be something beneficial. A man is not to destroy the planet in wastefulness and greed. We often hear about conservationists who want to protect our planet, and often this is overstated, and it puts the planet above the human. What do we see here in the created order? We see that mankind is made lower than the angels, but he's above the creation. He's, he's given dominion and stewardship above it. And so may we never be the servant of the planet. We're the servant of God. And so maybe a better word here is priest. See, Adam is called to stand before God and represent God to creation and represent creation to God. And that, in that sense, when we think about caring for the planet, uh, we're to be good stewards of what God has given us charge of. But we're to do this as an act of worship, not as an act of selfishness. Adam is now God's vice regent who's been given a loaned authority over creation. And when we talk about authority, we, we looked at this in Romans 13, didn't we? We talked about, in that sermon, God and government, Romans 13. We see that the government and the family and the church have authority, but it's earthly authority, so it's limited and finite. So in government, we have the sword. In the family, we have the rod. And in the church, we have the keys. The rod, the sword, the keys. We realize these are limited and finite authorities. They can't necessarily always bleed into another. So the church does not have the authority, we've said this before, to build roads. That's the government's authority. We don't have the uh, authority to affirm someone's citizenship in a, uh, in a sovereign nation. We don't have the authority to do that as the church. I can't say, hey, I confer on you citizenship in America. Welcome. Welcome to America. I can't do that as a pastor. Parents, we do not have authority to make our children members of Christ's church. Well, you know, they've made a profession of faith, so yeah, they're members now. No, no, we, we don't have that authority as parents. And the government doesn't have the authority to dictate what elements do or do not belong in a worship gathering of God's people. So the sword, the rod, the keys are a limited or finite authority with a sphere of influence uh, that, that is important, but it, it is uh, finite. And if you want to learn more, you can go back and listen to that sermon. So man's authority here over creation, it's a stewardship. We are stewards of God's creation. This is our world to be sure, but it's God's world. As we'll see later in our study of Genesis, after the fall, mankind rebels against this mandate. And instead of filling the earth and spreading out, taking the glory of God to the nations, to the ends of the earth, man will rebelliously congregate at Babel. 
Instead of making a name for Yahweh, man seeks to make a name for himself. God's desire is that blessable image bearers would reproduce as they enjoy God's graceful blessings in their life, but they'd also spread out to extend his glory to the next generation. But what we'll see happening is that man will exchange that glory for other images. The image of God is not enough. No, we want created things to be the image we give glory to. We want to worship the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever. We're going to see in Genesis that God selects a nation, Israel, who's chosen to be a light to the Gentiles, but instead Israel stubbornly hides that light under a bushel. And yet it's through Israel that our Messiah comes, who reveals the glory of God in the highest, who brings peace on earth through his presence and through his sacrificial death on the cross. We'll celebrate that this week with Good Friday and Easter. Now, as we consider the book of Genesis, and our our series title is From Creation to New Creation, uh, there are three application points for us this morning I want us to jot down. Number one, the image of God is an origin as well as a destination. In other words, who we are in the Imago Dei is already, but it's not yet, like so many things. We're already created in the image of God, and yet we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We read this in the scripture. Colossians 1 tells us that there's a mystery. It's Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We learn in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image, the icon of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God looks at our salvation as if it's past tense. It's already happened. We're being conformed. We will be conformed into the image of Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we with unveiled face beholding what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. There's that word from one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed, conformed into Christ's glorious image. And though as humans, we all bear the stamp of God's image upon us, as Christians, there's a more glorious image we're being conformed into, and that's of Christ. Jesus is the perfect, visible expression of the reality of God, and we are being conformed into that image, being transformed. So it's not only an origin, it's a destination. Secondly, if you're taking note, and we'll really dive into this at Easter next week, but where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. When we consider Adam and Jesus, Adam, created in the image of God, will abdicate the authority he's been given, and he abdicates it to his wife. And yet Christ took our blame upon himself. Adam doubted the word of God, but Christ upheld the word of God. He fulfilled the law to the letter. Adam didn't fill the earth with the glory of God, but with the curse of sin. And Jesus filled the earth with the glory of redemptive salvation by becoming a curse. Adam marred the image of God, and Christ restores it. You see, it was in a garden that sin brought corruption. And it was in another garden where our dear Lord was betrayed with a kiss, where He would be placed under the authority of the temple guard to win our salvation within a few hours' time. Adam failed, but Christ has succeeded in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that should give us hope this morning. Finally, number three, man 
has intrinsic dignity and worth because we're created in God's image. You see, it's not your ability, your gifts, or government that is the basis for dignity or human rights. No, it's the image of God. And that's a good thing because despots throughout time have made humans dispensable based on their current whims, based on their usefulness to society. And we see that in extreme forms, but we see that today. And so I would condemn racism, classism, slavery, murder, abortion, euthanasia, even suicide. These are reprehensibly sinful. And these mar the picture that God displays by stamping his image upon each and every human. Even if you think you're greater than another human, or you believe that human does not deserve to live. It doesn't matter what you believe. We're created in God's image. Therefore, we have inherent dignity, worth, and value. We were created on purpose for a purpose. But, folks, if we were merely evolved apes, then why not just appeal to natural selection? You get in my way, I can take you out. Because if there's no moral law and no moral lawgiver, I can just take a life and go have a beer. It really doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and die, and be merry. There's really no purpose in life. See, we have intrinsic dignity and worth because we are made in the image of God. We represent God to creation. One of my favorite hymns is Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. It's a beautifully written hymn, and uh, it's a song that reminds us to keep our eyes fixed on our sustainer and our provider, the one who reigns and the one who ordains, the King of Creation. It was actually written by a German evangelical a Lutheran theologian, late 1600s. And this is a man who would love to take long walks in the countryside and just look around at creation. And his heart was stirred to write songs that reflected the glory of God as his creation day after day pours forth uh, knowledge of God's attributes. And one of this man, this, uh, this hymn writer's favorite spots was a beautiful gorge where the Dussel River ran. And uh, it was just east of the city of Dusseldorf. In fact, he spent so much time writing hymns and poems in this valley, they named the valley after him. The man's name was Joachim Neander, and the valley became known as the Neander Valley. However, in German, the word for valley is Thal or Tal. And this valley where God was worshipped as the creator became simply known as Neanderthal or Neanderthal. Around 200 years after this hymn writer died, limestone was being quarried, and some workers came across caves where they unearthed the first Neanderthal man. And after further review, of course, they realized this was not an evolutionary ancestor to humans, but was simply a human himself. And even after being debunked, Neanderthal man still is considered to be a missing Link. And as one professor put it, he said, when Joachim Neander walked in his beautiful valley so many years ago, he could not know that hundreds of years later, his name would become world famous, not for his hymns celebrating creation, but for a concept that he would have totally rejected, human evolution. Now, we may not be able to redeem the word Neanderthal back to its original meaning, but as we see the original design of man in scripture, we understand the worth, the value, the meaning, and the purpose of every human being because we have God's image upon us. As we close, we have been given a dominion mandate to bear his authority for a time and to enjoy his grace and extend his glory. When Jesus was about to ascend, he said this to his disciples, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, we have now in Christ a new and fuller mandate. We have a commission to disciple the nations, to baptize God's image bearers into God's name, to communicate who Christ is, what he's done and what he's taught, to bear his name to the ends of the earth, knowing he is with us to the very end. What great comforting words those are. That we have the opportunity in light of Christ's absolute and ultimate authority to be global Christians. That means we can pray for the, for the nations. We can send missionaries to the nations. We can welcome the nations here to Florida. We can mobilize other Christians to the nations. And perhaps we can even go if God would will. Amen? Amen. So let's praise the Lord for this incredible mandate he's given us in the Great Commission. Let's stand together. As we close in song, we're going to sing a familiar hymn that Christ is with us to the end. So Lord, we thank you that you gave Adam this mandate. He failed, and yet Christ has fulfilled where Adam failed. He succeeded. The earth has been filled with the glory of God, and Lord, we as your image bearers continue to see the earth filled with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Lord, to that end, would you strengthen us today to bear the authority you've given us, submitted to your authority. Lord, we thank you that you have gifted us with your grace, your goodness, your blessing. And Lord, I pray that we would have the strength to stand, to go, Lord, and to bear your name before all men. We thank you for this time together in study. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage our hearts as we sing. In Christ's name. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.